Y'all didn't know y'all were getting into a hymn sing this morning. When I start thinking about Grandma Chambers, I just start singing hymns. She took me to my first concert when I was seven years old. I went to the Gaither vocal band. Any Gaither vocal band fans out there? It's okay. You can be young and love the Gaithers. You can be young and love all Vestal Goodman. Mm, praise God. Jake Hess. None of y'all know what I'm talking about. Hopefully you know uh, about the book of Acts. If not, we've been studying it together for the better part of the summer. And we're coming to a transition point where we're going to pause our study on the book of Acts and go into a different teaching series for the fall as we get ready to roll. Uh, So we've looked in really two big stints of about four and a half months. We've gone through what will be the first 12 chapters of this book. Acts 1 to Acts 6 give us really the early church history, the inauguration of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, the day of Pentecost as the disciples begin to preach the gospel to a crowd of people uh, in the language of the, uh, the native tongue of the people that were in the crowd. And 2,500 people come to faith in that day. They gather together for around three years in Jerusalem, fellowshipping, breaking bread, dividing burdens, multiplying joys. God was at work. It was a beautiful thing. And God was at Adding to their number daily. That's the wording we see in Acts 3 and 4 and 5. And up to Acts 6, they would get arrested. They would be persecuted. They'd go through tribulation. And God would just show up in a palpable way and deliver them. Uh, They'd be arrested one night. They would wake up to go check the cell the next day. And they were in the courts preaching and not in the cell. And they didn't know what to do with these people. So they just threatened them. Just stop preaching. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop bringing his name up. But everywhere they went, they talked about Jesus. And the only places they went were Jerusalem. Then in Acts 7, uh, a guy named Stephen, who was one of the uh, deacons that was pulled out of the crowd to meet the early needs of the growing church, stands up and preaches, just like Peter and the other disciples had done, uh, to religious leaders, just like Peter and the other disciples had done. But instead of threatening him or imprisoning him, they pick up stones and they kill him. And the church is scattered and it begins to be ravaged. It meets a wall in its growth. People are scattered to Judea and Samaria. They probably thought, God has lost control. What is going on? Where is God? He was the God that showed up, but now he seems the God that's not anywhere to be seen at all in our lives. As they were scattered, though, they kept doing one thing, preaching the gospel everywhere they went. They just made sure that even in the midst of being on the run, they would preach the gospel on the run. One of my favorite stories came out from the BBC uh, several years ago. Uh, in a Middle Eastern country, the church was being ravaged by ISIS. And uh, as they were rolling through village to village and they were marking Nazarene on the doors of the believers or the non-Muslim people in the area, the underground church had to become a on-the-road church. And they were scattering and running. And BBC reporters caught up with some of them. And they asked, in particularly the missionaries who were not from the ethnic background of that Middle Eastern country, why they were still there and what they were doing. Why didn't you get out through your embassy? And they said, our job is to train and teach the people of this country to be followers of Jesus that make disciples of people in this country. So we are journeying with people from this country who have now become refugees so that they can be trained to become disciples that go back to that country to teach the gospel and make disciples. And the reporter, almost gobsmacked at the statement, said, well, what will you do if they kill you for this? And they said, then our blood will speak to the blood of a Savior that was poured out for them. But nonetheless, we will teach the gospel and we will train disciples to reach the non-believing world until the day we die. Uh, That is a commitment that for many of us we have never thought about. 
We talk about allegiance to Jesus in the church, but for many of us, we've never had the kind of tribulation and trial that we've been given the grace to endure by the Spirit of God that has caused what really is being believed and practiced in our life to surface. You see, suffering brings the real belief to the surface. Many of you claim that you love God. Many of you claim that you trust God. But your circumstances often reveal that there is a shallow trust and a shallow love that actually exists. It's not reached to the level of the great prophetesses. Real love. It's just a kind of sort of love. And that's where you're at. Uh, what, what I long for in our church, that was a cheesy dad joke that did not go as well as I'd hoped it would go. What I long for in our church, what I'm hoping will happen as a result of us studying the book of Acts in the early church growth is that you would root in a love and in a grit that will go out and stir up in the name of Jesus trouble, not because you're looking for it, but because the gospel, when it illuminates the darkness, always con- comes into confrontation with the dark. And that, that's been my ambition, that you would treasure Jesus deeply, that you would take the fact that you have been given a short amount of time to be a great commission fulfiller personally, and that you would not simply put the duty of making disciples on the shoulders of an, a few off to the side who are supposed to be the pastors, but that you would understand that your primary purpose as an ambassador of God's kingdom, as an embassy in your house and in your community for the kingdom of God, would be a person that would take this commission seriously enough to go out and live it out. That is my hope, uh, that, that, that your life would be disrupted that your life would be turned upside down with the kingdom values of God. So as we conclude the chapter, we're going to conclude this section that we're studying, what's going to happen is a major shift. So let me give you the historical stuff. There's a lot of history here to tie a bow on this. And for some of you that like the History Channel when they still did history, you remember that? Um, <clears throat> Before American pickers, you know, I'm talking like they, like everything was like Caligula in the Roman Empire tonight at seven. You know, like that, that was like the, remember when MTV played music too? It's, it's kind of like that. That's what I'm, that's what, I, that's what I'm after. Uh, but, but for those of you who like history, this will be great. For those of you that don't, uh, we're glad you're here anyway. Um, but I'm still going to teach you history because I started out as a history minor and uh, it just is in my bones. I, 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 it was the only subject I was really naturally good at. And so I'm sticking to my strengths here. Uh, so uh, by Acts chapter 12, what's going to happen? Is there's going to be a major transition where we're going to get one last look uh, into the ongoings of the church in Jerusalem. And the capital of the Christian movement is going to shift from that place moving forward to Antioch. Now, let me explain why I'm saying it that way. Uh, in Acts chapter 11, we're told that the first place that, that the people were called Christian who were of this new group, was Antioch. And that's the first place where you started to see a multicultural gathering of believers that came together for the work of the Lord. Now, now what's interesting about it is Jerusalem's going to go through suffering and persecution, and they're going to struggle. And they're going to need an offering to even get by as they're in the midst of a famine. And, and in the middle of all of that, the place where that offering comes from is Antioch. On top of that, every missionary journey in Acts 13, 14, 15, 16 and on it's going to launch out of Antioch. So what's going to happen is you're going to see a shift in where the kind of the heartbeat of the early Christian church is moving from, and it's going to go from Jerusalem to a little bit north up here in Antioch where God was beginning to work in a multicultural church and sending them out to the nation. So uh, Peter and Paul's missionary journeys, guess where they launched from? Antioch. 
And that's what you're going to see happen over the chapters to come when we get back to this great book. In the meantime, in the meantime, just to make sure you got the story in your head, by Acts chapter 8 where we started, the church gets scattered. A guy named Philip takes the gospel into Samaria who was not a group of people that were like in real good cahoots with the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And uh, he preaches the gospel there. There's lots of conversion that takes place there. Then he's taken up and he goes to a, to a place where there's a eunuch from Ethiopia who was coming back from Jerusalem. He preaches the gospel there as the eunuch's reading from what many call the fifth gospel in Isaiah, where it talks about him being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Anyway, uh, Acts 9 then brings out an adversary named Saul that becomes the advocate and one of the greatest advocates of the gospel in biblical times uh, after being blinded by God's grace on the road to Damascus. So he becomes an advocate of the gospel in Acts 9. In Acts 10, there's a guy named Cornelius who's a Roman soldier, likely from Italy, uh, in the heart of the Roman capital, or Roman, as Roman as you can get, and he's uh, in charge of tons of men. And in Acts chapter 10, a Gentile Roman soldier uh, comes to the household of a tanner that Peter was staying at. They send for him and his entire household, and hearing the gospel, has the Holy Spirit fall on them, and they all begin proclaiming, worshiping, and glorifying God. Peter goes, well, I guess we can't keep the Gentiles who don't eat like us, live like us, or act like us out of the church anymore. We've got to let them into our table. Then in Acts chapter 11, ministry in Antioch breaks out. We're told at the beginning of Acts 11 that all the other disciples were going city to city and they were preaching to the Jews only. But in Acts 11, some step out and begin to preach to anyone that would hear. Anyone who has ears, let them hear. And as they begin to proclaim the gospel, Gentile conversion comes in. And, and what's uniquely noted in Acts 11 is those that stepped out and began to preach the gospel to people that no one else would preach the gospel to, it says the Lord was with them. It's not to denote that he's not with his church in general, <clears throat> but there's a big difference between being a church that's submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit and being a church that's just simply come to kind of weakly memorialize the Christian faith. Uh, museums, moves of God. And I've, I've been a part of and been involved with both. Some churches are museums, they're curating the faith. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to curate and remember, but it's not an active faith that's leading them into a life that looks any different than the rest of the world. A move of God involves a group of people that are surrendered to the work of God, that take up the cross and they follow God into their daily life. And if you've not gotten to a rhythm of understanding that moment by moment and minute by minute, we are meant to live in complete and utter dependence on the work of God, then you and I have some development and maturing to go in our faith, no matter how many Bible facts you may know. Are you tracking with me? Give me a water. Oh, thank you. Gracias. So, uh, Acts 11 hits. The church in Antioch is this multicultural gathering of believers, and it's in that place that they are first called Christian. From this point forward, lot, most of the Christian emphasis and focus is going to come out of Antioch as it goes around the world. But if you've watched SpongeBob SquarePants, it's like, meanwhile, we're going to get that. And that's what 12, chapter 12 is. It's like, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem. And it's one last look to remind us that while God's work is moving and going out, that God still cares about Jerusalem, that God still loves the church in Jerusalem. And, and this is what we get in chapter 12. It's the meanwhile and the look back. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church in Jerusalem. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. 
when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under uh, guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Okay, a few few things in these first five verses. It opens up with the words about that time, which naturally makes you go, well, what time was it? Uh, What was happening? Well, Acts chapter 11 tells us that in verse 27, during the time some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings, how many of you want, okay, there's some really good New Testament names, but I just got to point this out because my ADD is all over the place right now. Um, there's Dorcas and there's Agabus. Anyone volunteering? Like, if, any of you ever thought, like, I want to name my kid a really godly name. What, what are you thinking? Well, our finalists are Agabus or Dorcas. Uh, anyway, my point. Agabus. So Agabus, verse 28, stood up in one of the meetings. Not sure if some of you are expecting a child. Maybe you were looking for name suggestions. May I suggest Agabus? Um, Stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. That's an important note. Verse 29 So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea and everyone giving as much as they could. This they did entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So most Bible historians, they believe that what's going on at the about this time in verse 12 is Barnabas and Paul are likely coming down with an offering. A a, a time of famine has broken out over the land. And so the world's in a pandemic mode. And in the midst of the pandemic, people naturally are all kind to each other and sharing with each other because this is human nature we're just a few more decades away from figuring it out and eliminating any need for any kind of government or anything because we just all got along I mean we started it at Woodstock and the peace love and free love movement and we clearly made progress you see this this is what Many in the world believe that given enough time, humanity will fix itself. And all we are doing is digging a deeper hole. Like, like, like I, I want you to understand that if you look at the world and think all we need is a little bit better human governance, uh, more democracy, more Republicans, more, more Democrats. I, I, don't, I don't know what your man-made remedies are. I, I just want to clue you in on the fact that you are way off on what you think is really going to be the solve or the salve for the problems of this world. The church in Antioch is collecting an offering to go down to the church in Jerusalem. And naturally, during that time, people were on edge. People are hungry. People don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Uh, Likely, they're not looking at government leaders with uh, great admiration during that time. You guys know this because we just went through a little global pandemic. Well, some of y'all, if you're from Woodruff, you, you don't know anything happened. But apparently, the rest of the world, okay, uh, back in 2020, shut down. 
Y'all just kept living. But, but the rest of the world, the rest of the world stopped what they were doing. For eight and a half months in California, uh, we were completely like regulated to stay at your house, don't go to work. If you go to work and you don't have the special license, they're going to tell you you got to go home. Like it, it was like 1984 stuff if you ever read that and didn't just cliff note it. Like it was crazy what was going on out in California. During that time, I had 350 people that were a part of our church that moved to like Arizona and Idaho and Texas and they wrote letters and said, we'll see you soon. Like, it it was tough. It was a difficult time. And people did not get along. Outside of the church or inside the church, they argued everywhere, Uh, especially when it came to government and especially when it came to government leaders. There was this really unifying election that we had around that time. I don't know if you remember that. Everyone got along, and we supported people. You saw certain bumper stickers, and you're thinking, if, if Jesus wasn't in me, I would, I, would, I would drive them off the road because they're moving into our state and they're going to flip it and screw it up just like they came out of that screwed up state. Not, not that any of you still think stuff like this. Online, Christians started calling other Christian sheep in a negative and derogatory way. Do you remember this? This was going on actively. Why are you acting like a sheep? Last time I checked, we were meant to be sheep. I didn't know we were supposed to be wolves. Like, or I'm a lion. Okay. See how that goes for you, Thunder. I mean, I, I like... All of the stupid stuff that we do in the midst of suffering and pain, that's likely happening between the margins here. There's, there's a famine. Life is difficult. It is not easy. And in the middle of that, a government official named King Herod of Agrippa rises up. Now, let me give you some background on King Herod of Agrippa. Herod Agrippa's father, Aristobulus, was murdered by his grandfather when he was seven years old because he was afraid that his father was going to take over the throne. After his father's death, he was shipped to Rome to go to school. He became close friends, and this will prove to be providential. Uh, he'll, He'll become close friends with a guy named Claudius and a guy named Caligula, which will prove to be extremely helpful down the road. After getting into trouble with debtors because he was living a Vegas bachelor lifestyle according to historians that you can read about him from. He runs off uh, and lives in poverty and obscurity with his uncle, Herod Antipas, in Palestine. After some time, though, he returns, and he was arrested by Emperor Tiberius for making critical remarks about him. Tiberius dies, and Caligula, his childhood friend, comes to power. When Caligula Uh, comes to power, he releases Agrippa from prison and gifted him a gold chain that weighed the same amount as the shackles he had worn in prison. I mean, you can hear it in the background, right? Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team. All right. This is what happens in my head when I read the Bible. My quiet times are fascinating. It's Sometimes they need to be corrected, but it's fascinating. So Caligula releases him, gives him a gold chain. Agrippa is also named governor over all of the Palestinian provinces at that time. Then Caligula has a really bad reign. That comes to an end. So guess who takes his place? His other childhood friend, Claudius. I mean, this guy's got friends in high places. Under Claudius, Agrippa became ruler of Judea and Samaria, which is how we get to him being in this story in Acts chapter 12. And as a result, Agrippa learned how to become a master uh, politician, 
which means he, he was always thinking politically. Like, how can I get everyone around me to like me more? So the, the, the historians write that uh, Agrippa, when he was in Rome, was the most Roman of Roman citizens you could ever find. He was pro-Rome. He was a Roman nationalist. He was singing the Roman anthem. He was all about the emperor. He knew all the Roman culture and all the Rome. Like, he was, he was Roman. But he was ethnically Jewish. And the closer he got to Jerusalem, the more Jewish he became. And the more of an act he would put on. He observed all of the feasts. He observed all the Passovers. He knew all of the law. He could quote scripture at the right time, had it in his back pocket, and he would have the people eating out of his hand. So he was a master tool in the hand of the people that he was serving because he was ethically from a background that tended to have uprisings and caused the Romans trouble, but he was allegiant to the Roman government enough to where they thought that they had him in the palm of their hands. And so he's playing both sides, and as a result of it, that's why he's doing what he's doing in Acts chapter 12 in the middle of an uprising and a famine, when people are not happy, he takes John's brother, James, and he has him killed with a sword. It's a political move. It's not a zealous move for the sake of Judaism. It's a move to go, let's see if this gets people talking about my greatness instead of our failures to feed the people. It says they put him to the end of a sword. The Roman way of killing by the sword was that he had been beheaded, and many believe that that is how he was killed. But according to the law, if you're a heretic, you were to have, be pierced by the sword. Uh, I would suggest to you that based on his political maneuvering, he, in Roman not caring how he died, uh, they probably pierced James through with the sword, which was what was written in the law, what you were to do with a heretic, so that he could gain even more favor with the Jewish audience. The text tells us that when he did it, when he killed him with the sword, he saw how much it pleased the Jewish people. So he thought, we're on to something. Kill the Christians, the ratings go up. The approval goes through the roof. So he arrests Peter and throws him in prison. Now, obviously, someone had warned him that Peter's a slippery inmate. He's gotten out of several sticky situations. So Agrippa says, not this time. He takes four sets of troop of four. Two would have been tied to Peter on his right and to his left. Two would have watched the door. They went in four sets throughout the day, uh, which would divide out to about six-hour shifts where they would stay awake and chained to Peter. There's a problem that comes when he arrests him, though. It's at the time of, what's the text say? Passover. And it was unlawful to try someone on Passover. And even if you're not an Old Testament scholar, you know this because there was this guy named Jesus about 30-ish years earlier uh, that was arrested during Passover week. So they had to have a late-night trial illegally so they could get around the law because they weren't supposed to try him during the Passover feast. It was a time of peace. It was a time where you settled down. It was a time of observance where you gathered together and you remembered the deliverance of God over the people of Israel. So it's the time of Passover, so they have to hold him with the four sets of troops that are chained to him and watching over him. Let's see what else is in here. But Peter, while he was there in prison, the church prayed, and the text says, earnestly for him. Okay, uh, here's the problems that I have that, that I struggle with. Do they not pray for James? Is that, was, that the, was that the key factor? Like, was it so sudden with James that uh, they grabbed him and they put him in the sword and the church didn't have time to react? Or, or did they pray 
earnestly for James and God just didn't move? I can't move through the story without thinking, well, what about James, Lord? If Peter's going to get set free in the text, not to spoil the story, <laughs> but James is going to die in the text, how can we trust that God is good? Because I want to know that I'm more Peter in the story than I am James, if that's the case, because I don't want to be the one that's killed. I want to be the one that's set free. And how do we reconcile good God and bad things that, that happen? You see, these are the stories that we often struggle through if we use our brain on because we've all had moments where we prayed earnestly and, and it came out more like James than it came out like Peter. Here's, here's what I'm learning about God. The most frustrating, difficult times that I've had in my relationship with God have not been the times where God told me yes or no. It's the times where I prayed and God was silent. Like I I've had times in my life where like we, we were short on money and we couldn't come up with rent or uh, we were living like below the poverty line when we went to plant a church in California. Like we were living on $1,500 a month and like eight fifty dollars was our rent, uh, which, you know, Dave Ramsey math tells you that's a bad idea. Um, and, and, and we were broke, broke, and we prayed and like money just showed up. But then there, there are other times where, like, we had a saint in our church that loved the Lord and was faithful and had young children, and she had cancer, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And the more we prayed, the worse it got. And if God would have said, hey, I'm not going to answer that, I'm bringing her home, that, that's one thing. But, but it was like there was no answer. We are just praying. You ever been there? In, in a season where you see God miraculously move in other places that causes you to not be able to just be agnostic because you know that you would have to discredit all these other things he has done but in your mind there's this big thing that he could do and he's not doing it I had a lady one time that they didn't have a microwave and like they were going through a lot of pain and struggling and they were praying and they were faithful serving in uh, prostitution ministry in Bakersfield and they kept praying about it and they were working one night and this dude rolls up on a bad street and he opens up his trunk and like hands her a microwave and it's like, hey, I just had an extra one of these and I feel like I'm supposed to come here and give it to you. It's like, there's God, wow. But they, they prayed about infertility for years. So God answers the prayer for the microwave but not for the baby. Like, can we just be honest to, to admit that there, there are some things that are perplexing about the way in which and the prayers in which God answers and sometimes doesn't answer in the timing or in the way that we thought that he was going to answer them? What it says in the text in verse 5 is that the church was praying earnestly. The, the word earnestly in the original language, which I don't always bring up, but if it's going to help you understand, I want to bring it up. It literally means they were praying in agony. So I, I've talked about this in this series. There's a lot of people that pray, you know, and like it's kind of like an afterthought, like, you know, Lord, thank you for the food and thank you for blessing us with it, amen. And then you just eat it with little to no thought of gratitude towards God. Or, or you know, I'm going to pray for you about that. And then you kind of like pray once, maybe for five seconds. Lord, be with them. And then, and then you move on. This is the kind of prayer where like your spirit is either going to worry or it's going to pray. You know what I'm talking about? Like Philippians says that we're to be anxious for nothing but through prayer and supplication we're to make our request known to the Lord. So there, there is a form of anxiety that we can live in, not all forms. Some of us, we, we need help and I'm pro-medicine and pro-doctor and all those kinds of things. And my point is, some of us though, 
We are anxious because we don't use what our body is telling us as an opportunity to pray, as an opportunity to pray. So then we write stories about what could happen as if we're some kind of cosmic insurance adjuster. And so we write out every terrible thing that can happen, convince ourselves that it's going to happen. Then we come to grips with the fact that it's definitely going to happen, which then it never actually happens in the details in the way that it, we were preparing for it to happen, i.e. Y2K, other moments in our life. Uh, you, some of you still got green beans in your basement from that. My, my point my point is you write out a narrative of disaster planning that is absent from an attitude and a conviction that's praying. And so you're filled and ridden with fear and worry because you didn't take the prescribe of the Bible, which is when you're filled with worry and uncertainty, bend your knee and come to a God who holds the future and owns everything and pray and contend and pray and contend. And that's the kind of prayer that's going on. They don't know what the future's going to hold, but they're praying and they're contending and they're not sleeping and they can't rest because they're going to pray and contend until an outcome comes. That, that's what's going on in verse 5. Are you tracking with me? Then we hit verse 6. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial. It's the end of Passover. The next day is the end and the first day after Passover. Peter, you ready for this? This is the peculiar guy he is. Is asleep. How many of you who know this bad dude named Agrippa done killed your brother James that you love by the sword in Passover week, which probably has a little PTSD tied to it because you went through the whole trauma of he's dead, psych, okay? I, I probably, probably messing with you a little bit. How many of you night before are going, 8.30 is when I go to bed. Time for me to lay down between these two shoulders that are chained to me and take a nap. I'm probably wringing my hands out if I'm honest. I don't know that I've arrived to a place of dependency and trust in the sovereignty of God in my life to where I'm, I'm not writing out narratives and stories about what could or couldn't happen. I'm probably contending, God, where are you? What are you doing? Where are you at? Would you please intervene? Would you please open the cell? Remember, hey, remember that time that I got arrested with John and like, you like got us out? Let's replay that. Let's run that back, God. But I'm not sleeping. P Peter has come to a place of contentment with whatever's to come in his life that I don't yet understand. And maybe you've been there. In your suffering, in, in your pain, you are content with whatever the Lord would will and have for you. Verse 6, he's asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter, and he said, God loves you. I'm sorry, that's touched by an angel. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrist. And then the angel told him, Get dressed. Okay, consider the comedy of this. Essentially, Peter is not in like early non-REM sleep. He is deep in sleep. So much so that the angel has to hit him to get him up, one, because the light doesn't wake him up. Uh, two, uh, when he wakes him up, he has to say, get dressed. Like, Put your clothes on. So after he gets his clothes on, look at what it says. The angel told him, get dressed, put your sandals on. And, and he did. Now, Put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard post and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. 
That's a big deal. I could go into the details of what they believe that gate looked like and how much it weighed. Let's just say it was a miracle. God moved. Okay. They passed the first, second guard post. They went by the gate by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Okay. Zero hour at hand. Peter is going to likely die in the morning without divine intervention. The angel of the Lord appears and five things happen. His presence filled the cell with light. The angel struck Peter's side. The angel struck him to get up and get ready. His chains fall off. Peter was told to put on his clothes because it was time to go and they walked out. Let me be very clear. What happens in chapter 12 is not an escape. It's a deliverance. And you need to know the difference between an escape and a deliverance. When God moves, he delivers. Whenever you move, you escape. Uh, escapes are your cunning and your plan. You sit there with the shank in prison and you chip behind the poster and you make your plan on the right time, on the right shift change for you to get out of something. This was not an escape that was connived by men. This was not a plan where the disciples on the outside hooked up a bull to the bars on the inside, smacked the bull on the behind and it pulled the gate out and drug them down the road. This is not a movie. This is not something that we would come up with. This is a delivering move of God. You see, in an escape, you make the plan, but in a deliverance, God reveals his plan. In an escape, you look for the right time and determine when you will make a run, but in a deliverance, God determines the timing and you can walk out of the thing that you would normally run from. In, a, in an escape, you sneak out to avoid your captors, but in a deliverance, you walk right by them and you can even look them in the eye. See, see, there's a difference. Many of you have escaped by your own cunning and by your own ability. You conquered an addiction. You can't overcame something. God's given you gifts and power and grit. That's awesome. But when you're delivered from something, what you have is a story of how God intervened in spite of you. Where you were weak and had an inability to overcome something, God made a possibility possible that was not a possibility on your behalf. And this is something that I think needs to be spoken of. Because for many of you, many of you, you don't have a story of how you've escaped to get to today. You have a story of how God, when you were stuck with no hope and death was looming around the corner, had God step in and deliver you from the very thing that was seeking to destroy you. That's a story that should fill your mouth and fill your week and fill the ears of everyone that comes into contact with you. The world needs to know that God delivers. So God delivers captives from sin addicted people from their addictions so that they can tell the story of the delivering power of God. It wasn't your escape that got you through it. It was the deliverance of God that got you through it. Verse 12. The church, meanwhile, is doing what, according to verse 5? Praying for Peter. Okay? Look at, look at where we're at in verse 12. The angel leaves him. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Important historical note there. Mark, the gospel, was written as John Mark heard Peter go through the stories of Jesus. It's one of the earliest manuscripts we have of the stories of Christ. So obviously they're friends. John Mark's mama was a baller in some way because she has an entire church of people that are there praying for Peter. So it's probably a large house with big gates. Peter walks to that house realizing, hey, they're probably there if they know what's going on with me. They've gathered there, and they're waiting to see what's going to happen with me. So verse 13, he knocked at the door, and we're going to get another great Christian name here that could be considered for some of your children in the gate. A servant girl named Rhoda, which in our language means Rose, came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed that 
uh, overjoyed, so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. Verse 15. You're out of your mind, they said. Which she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. We'll have to dive into that briefly. But let me... Let me, let, me, let me essentially translate this for us. We're busy praying, Rhoda, for Peter. We don't have time to go and open the gate for Peter because we're too busy praying that God would deliver Peter. See, this is a, this is a problem. See, some of you would rather go through the practice of religious practices than actually expect that God would answer the prayers in the religious practice that you're keeping. See, a lot of us, we're praying for stuff that God's already got at the door, and we're just not opening the door. And the the problem is we'd rather pray about it than go and open the door. Prayer is not an invitation to passivity. We pray and we move. It's not we pray and we just wait and we sit. And if God wants it to happen, he'll, like, have it come through the door. No, sometimes he sends it to the door and it knocks. But it's your job to go and open the door. Somehow, okay, this church in Jerusalem that expected God to move all the way up to Acts 6, has seen enough moments of tragedy that they've begun to expect that sometimes suffering comes and God doesn't move and it doesn't go the way that we expect to where they, don't know, they no longer expect that Peter's going to show up at the gate. Think about it. They've lost Stephen. That didn't go the way they had hoped. They're in a famine. They've probably been crying out and asking God to feed them. That's not going the way they hoped. Now James has died. It's not going the way they hoped. And because they've seen suffering, it's now brought them to a point of almost not expecting that God can do the miraculous. Chapter 12 stands in between this transition to remind us that no matter what you've seen, no matter how much suffering you endured, God is a God who is able to step in and do the miraculous anytime he wants. See, the problem for many of us in this room is that we've stopped believing that God will. Many of you would say God can but you just determined that he won't before you've ever been read in or understood or fully realized what his will was and whatever story is being told. So so you're in a season of life where God can, but for me, he won't. Who determined that for you? Who, who, who was the one that told you that he won? When, when did you become the person that got to write the story and its ending over your life? See, th- this is the warning. That there are going to be times where you're going to pray and life's not going to go the way that you thought it would go. And the mystery is we're still called, in spite of that, to hope and to continue to petition and to continue to pray and to continue to present our desires before the Lord. And that's painful. Sometimes God doesn't say yes, and sometimes God doesn't say no. And sometimes you go through long seasons where you get nothing. And in the midst of that stand these parallels, that we're in a broken world, that it's painful, that it's difficult, and God is good and is at work. I have a pastor friend, faithful brother, preached at one church for almost 30 years, retired. He and his wife were going to go explore the world, and he found out he had terminal cancer within a week of retirement mega church that he pastored out in Bakersfield the whole church just begins praying and I never forget his words he 
was never supposed to make it out of the hospital. He got extended his life. He stood up and he got to preach a final sermon that he wasn't going to get to preach. They got to transition in the church and he got to kind of do those last things. He's still in the battle right now. Since Pastor Roger Spradlin, love him to death. Um, and he stood up and he said, I'm asking you to pray because we just don't know what the Lord would have. See, there, there's a time to mourn in this life. There's a time, time when it's done and you mourn and you entrust the pain to God. But, but for a lot of us, we've now moved back the mourning before it's ever been decided. And that's what I'm trying to encourage against. That's what I think Roman, That's what I think Acts 12 is discouraging against, is the idea that before it's actually final, we've already written it out as being final, and though we're still praying, we're not really expecting that God's actually going to move. And, and that's the stuff that I think we have to contend with. The stuff that's not done, but in our attitude, in our expectations on what God is going to do with it, we've already written it off as being done, and we've already come to a place where we're good with it. And, and I think Acts 12 confronts and says, hey, hey, look, stop determining the outcomes that God has not revealed. Stop thinking that because you've suffered that God's plan is that in this next chapter you won't experience the miraculous because in the last one you didn't see it come in the way that you thought. So I, I just want to admonish, I just want to remind you that we serve a God who is sovereign over everything. There's not a bit of suffering that happens on earth that will not in the end give a peculiar glory and will not in light of him fade away, not because it wasn't significant, not because it didn't hurt, but because when you see him and what he has done, it will all then align and make sense so that as you love him and as you serve him, you'll, you'll see the pain and the tears wiped away. But, but, but in the meantime, we still stand in this tension of knowing that at times God still desires and will move miraculously. And we are to pray for and expect the miraculous in our lives. We're not to be praying agnostics or praying atheists that say things that we don't actually believe is possible with God. But we pray with expectation. We pray and labor in the endeavor of prayer until the outcome comes. And that is the journey and the joy of the believer. Is that before... <laughs> earthly authorities get to have a final authority we have an authority above them that gets the final say over everything and we get to go to him in whatever it is that's going on in our life are you too busy doing the religious acts of praying and other stuff that you aren't actually looking for a move of God a miracle that's knocking at the door you see sometimes God brings justice immediately and sometimes God brings justice in the end but God is always just and he's always good. So I just want to encourage you, if you do not in this season have an outcome, but in your mind it's already written and it's bleak, can we pray for you today? Can we pray for you today? If you're struggling to believe that there's light in what's dark in your life, would you allow us the joy and the honor of praying for you today? I get it, you, you've prayed about whatever said issue is and it's kind of calloused at this point in your life, you're good with it. You don't need to poke around with hope in it anymore. You just need to leave it on the side of, I'm sure God will say something about it someday. You're almost like the Shunammite woman that is confronted by Elijah who's basically making one more cake so that her and her kid can eat it and die. I'm good with it. 
Meanwhile, the miracle shows up and the jar is filled with oil over and over again so that not only do you not die, but you thrive. But then the kid dies. Remember that? And a miracle has to take place again. This is my point. We are to be a people that are expecting on the miracles of God, that look for the miracles of God. And if you've lost your expectancy, can we pray for you today? Our prayer team's here. If you need prayer, you move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name.